0: you open up your Bibles to Luke 11? For those of you who are done kibitzing, please, Luke 11. No, I'm kidding. Bill. Bill, it was a year ago we were in Jerusalem. Yeah, one year ago. Brings a tear to your eye, doesn't it? If you can open up to Luke chapter 11. There is more to this world than meets the eye. Life as we know it isn't just about those things we can measure and record. Sight, sound, touch, and taste can only explain just so much. Mysteries around us abound, unknown realities are hidden from view, and stranger things do exist. Why do you think Halloween is so compelling? It's not just because people get to dress up and eat more candy but because we all know there are spirits and scary creatures lurking in the shadows, Jackie. It's scary out there. Truth is, we aren't the only ones in the world. As the famous movie quote goes, they're here. It's that little girl. Do you remember that old movie in the 80s? Mike, remember that? 70s. Poltergeist. My dad took me to that movie. It's a bad movie. My dad took me. Anyhow, they are here. And if you are a Christian, you can't deny the reality of the supernatural. In fact, most of your hope rests on things you cannot see. In fact, the majority of it does. You are banking on things that you have really never touched, never tasted, and you don't really know for sure do you? Show me the Holy Spirit. Where is he? What's he look like? You can't show me the Holy Spirit, but you know he's there. Last year about this time, one of our missionaries, this is a true story, one of our missionaries, Trevor Miller, he was home for furlough. He works in Brazil, he teaches theology to Brazilian students in a theology department at a seminary, and he told me some of his students come from the Amazon rainforest. And some of them were at one time in their life animists. What an animist is, is a person who worships spirits, specifically jungle spirits. Right before Trevor left, he gave all the pastors in our church this book, Spirit of the Rainforest. Right here he said, Chris, this is a very important book to kind of know some of the people we teach. And I looked at it. I have to be honest with you. I judge books by its cover. And this looks like a lame book. I didn't tell him that. I didn't tell him, well, thanks, Trevor. And I put it on the top shelf. Trevor says, well, when you read that, it's pretty graphic. gave me a little more curiosity, but still. That looks like somebody kind of produced it and sold it online themselves. So I put it on the top shelf. Well, I normally, what I do as a pastor is I have a reading schedule where I will read, you know, some theology or I'll read a biography or then I'll read some, you know, just an interesting book to do better with my language. And I didn't have a book and I saw this on my shelf. Some said, ah, should I read this book? I don't know. So I opened it up. And right from the get-go, it was like a book I, I've never read a book like this. Listen to even the introduction. It's talking about the jungle tribe in Brazil. It says, the Yanomamo are the world's most mysterious peoples. Small, rarely over five feet tall, they have the speed, strength, and agility of a jungle cat. Their women can tote their own weight up and down a jungle trail that would challenge me even if I were empty-handed. Their men can call, track, and shoot anything that breathes in a jungle that is hostile enough to kill anyone but a trained survivalist. Sounded good. A lot of violence. Exciting stuff. So I started reading it. It's about this jungle tribe, the Yanamamo. And it's written from one man's perspective that actually is a part of that tribe. Of course, his name was Jungle Man. Why wouldn't it be Jungle Man? He lived in the jungle. In fact, all of the characters in this book have strange names. Shoefoot, Big Head, Cross-Eyed, Hairy, Small Mouth, and Fast Man. But Jungle Man, the main character, and this is a shaman. A shaman is a person who channels disembodied spirits from the jungle. So he channels demons into his body. This book says the shaman is very important because the spirits will give him wisdom to help his tribe win battles, find new wives, and even help heal sick tribe members. So the book goes on to describe how a shaman is picked from the time they are young boys and they have a sensitivity to spirits in the jungle and rocks, trees, and the water. They just can hear voices. They can feel sensations nobody else can. And then as uh, the leaders say, I think you have, a, you have a seeing eye, meaning you've got a different sensitivity to the spiritual world, so they have a ceremony where the young boy will start inhaling this hallucinogenic drug called a bean, which makes him into a shaman where the spirits start dwelling in his body. They become, these spirits, the shaman's guide and companion for the rest of their life. Sounds kind of freaky to me. Kind of weird. Well, as you read this book, Trevor's right, it's very graphic. But here's four things the shaman says about the spiritual world. Number one, it's real. And it's populated by hundreds of thousands of spirits. Spirits, some of them are silly, little mischievous creatures. Some are dark, dangerous, and powerful. Second thing... Spirits want to come inside a person, especially the shaman. And when they do, they take over ownership. They are very jealous owners. And the more they dwell in a person, the more they are with you, the more you become like them. Third thing about the book is it says the more powerful spirits are often violent and angry. They want the shaman and his tribe to fight for dominance over all the other tribes And they're all about vengeance and retribution. In fact, throughout the book, if somebody in a family dies, you take their bones, they boil the bones in a broth, the shaman drinks the bones, and he's given power to then start a raid on the tribe that killed your relatives. It's kind of crazy. And when they involve uh, attacking another tribe, it involves pillaging, arson, and raping women. But what the spirits really enjoy they really like is killing, they love it, it thrills them. So throughout the book, the fourth thing is the main objective of the spirit is to stay in possession of the shaman and rule the tribe. They do not want to lose control, they don't want to lose ownership. So they'll do anything they can to keep that control. Sometimes they will flatter the shaman. Sometimes they will threaten through fear of punishment, they'll be cursed. But they have an enemy. They have an enemy spirit that they lie about, and this enemy spirit is called Yai Pada, kind of a strange name. Here's how they describe Yapada. They call him the creator of everything. They call him the Great Spirit, but they label him first and foremost the enemy. And they said, what's interesting, a group of white people came in called the Naba, who are the foreign missionaries. They are owned by Yapada, Yai Pada. Yai Pada. And so what happens, the tribal shamans stay away because they don't want to deal with this big spirit. So the shaman spirit wants to be the strongest, but against Yai Pada, they know they have no chance, so they stay away. So that's the book. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Like like, uh, when Trevor gave me that book, I'm like, what? Come on. This book's not... That's nonsense. It's nonsense. Who would ever... Who would ever believe in jungle spirits, especially unseen jungle spirits, inhabiting and controlling humans, getting them to control and kill? It's crazy. How can there be battles of strength going on where spirits are at war in some unseen realm? That's This is the craziest book I ever read. Or is it? I think we have one that's crazier. And I want you to open up to Luke and read along with me. Today we are going to read a story that's even crazier than this book, more detailed about the realm of the spirits. We're going to actually, through what we're going to read today, have these unseen realities identified, named, and described. And today we are going to learn who they are, what they want, and how they operate. So we're going to learn about these unseen spirits, who they are, what they want, how they operate. And most of all, you're going to learn about who the strongest of them all is. That's why today the title is, Who's the Strongest? So let's read verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, How will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's what we're going to look at. Strange. I mean, if you read this, kind of like you read this book, and you take to heart what this says, we believe some very odd things. This passage to me is fascinating because through most of it, Jesus is giving us inside information on the spiritual world. Look how it opens. Look at verse 14. It's just a matter of fact. Now, Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. Kind of like, yep, another day, just casting out the demon. No big deal. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Luke is assuming, he's assuming, he's not arguing for, he's not persuading, he's assuming demonic existence. Demons exist. If you were to ask Luke with a sarcastic grin, so Luke, come on, come on. Really? You believe demons? You believe this stuff? I think he'd look at you and go, he'd say, of course, don't you? Don't you believe in demons? Luke is not trying to argue. He's just describing history which involves spirits. Real demons. In this section, the word demon, Beelzebub or Beelzebul, Satan, and unclean spirit is used more than ten times. The word demon has at its root the idea of a knowing or enlightened one, a smart being. One Greek lexicon said demons are the spiritual agents acting in all forms of idolatry. They want to take you away from true, pure worship of Christ alone. That's what idolatry is. It's worshiping something other than Jesus alone. They disseminate errors among men, they seduce false believers to leave Christ, and they are unclean. They're called unclean because they aren't allowed in the presence of God. They were thrown out. Theologians believe them to be fallen angels who rebelled alongside with the devil, and they have the ability, strange ability, to possess human beings. They even are allowed to inflict bodily disease when God permits it. Demons are strange. The word Beelzebub is an Old Testament name for lord of the house, like butler. Or some interpret it as lord of the dung, where you get lord of the flies, because out of the dung, the flies appear. In this story, the Jews were attributing to Jesus' power of casting out demons to Beelzebub. Because, as I said, Beelzebub is seen as kind of like the organizing, the head organizing demon, the butler over the other demons. So, naturally, some attribute the name Beelzebub to Satan, as if they're equivalent. Satan means adversary. That's what he means against, being against God. So, Satan is equivalent to Beelzebub? Most scholars would say probably, most likely. Whatever the case... Demons, Satan, are against the work and the will of God. That's their goal. To cause you to worship something else. I can hear somebody saying, wait, time out. Time out a second. Chris, you believe this stuff. Really? You really believe this stuff. You believe in demons. You believe in Satan. You believe in Beelzebub. Come on. I believe crazier things than that. I believe the earth was completely flooded. I believe Moses parted the Red Sea. I believe David beat a nine-foot man named Goliath with a slingshot. I believe Jesus walked on water. And I believe my body is going to die and be raised again in new life. I believe stranger things than these. Do you know why I believe these things? Because I believe this book. I believe this book. And when I believe this book, I'm believing a host of strange things. Second thing that we learn here is that demons themselves, we're going to find, are united together in rebellion. You see, Jesus believes in demons because he created everything in heaven and in earth. So when it says in Colossians, he created all things, things that are seen and unseen, the unseen things are angels. Jesus made them. That's why Luther says the devil is God's devil. He made him. There's not dualism. There's this famous drawing of Jesus arm wrestling Satan. Oh, who's gonna win? Whoa! <laughs> so stupid. Jesus made the devil. He exists because Jesus allows him to. So, <coughs> excuse me, hey Josh, could you get me some water, would you mind? <coughs> it's those rotten mentos you gave me, Sue, they're killing me. So he knows intimately how they organize and operate. Oh, did you have some? Bertha, you're all right, thank you. Bertha, you probably have you're like a good boy scout. You probably could take on the world with your purse. Switchblades. Her son when her son got married, he's going to light it. He's going to light this thing. He didn't he didn't it didn't work and he said, "Oh, we'll just have to go to plan B." He pulls out from the table a tor a blowtorch and lights The Whitehead's are always prepared. Always prepared. So, let's get back to business, Josh. Anyhow, so in other words, Jesus knows intimately how demons are organized and how they operate. But we, we are blinded to demonic workings. We are ignorant of spiritual realities. And in this passage, the Jews, they reveal their cluelessness because they accuse Jesus, as we read. They we, accuse Jesus of being empowered by Beelzebub because he cast out a demon. Another word that we use for casting out is exorcism. That's a scary word. Ooh, you know why? Because in the 1970s, they had a scary movie, and we take Hollywood to be telling us the truth, and Hollywood is trying to make money. Don't buy into Hollywood garbage. Don't play Hollywood's stupid game. It's sensationalism. I think, I think we've allowed, to some degree, Hollywood to set parameters of the way we do ministry. That's ridiculous. So, I want to show you something. Look in verse um, 15. It says, some of them said... It's interesting, verse 14, it says, a demon was cast out of a mute man, so a man wasn't speaking because the demon had the ability to make a mute, so he took that demon out of the man. The man was able to speak. And it says the people marveled. Like, whoa! it would be pretty cool, actually scary, freaky, but cool, but what's interesting is verse 15. But some of the some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign. And so they're accusing him of being a demon himself, but that mere accusation is an acknowledgment that he just he just cast out a demon. So by the they have just affirm the ability of Jesus, the power of Jesus by their accusation. It's a strange affirmation but it, they they believe. They believe in his power and they believe in demons. But the sad part is they're more upset at Jesus for healing a man than they are awestruck that he can throw out demons. That'd be overwhelming. Kind of how weird we are. We're weird like that. Sometimes we'll hear somebody gets healed or they, you know, they a demon was cast out. We're more upset. Hey, that's not allowed. Aren't you excited that the person's a lot better? Jesus, look, at. he responds to their attack in verse 17 and 19. He says, verse 17, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. That's what Abraham Lincoln used that quote. So Abraham Lincoln actually was proof texting. He was taking a wrong passage to confirm why we should go into a civil war. Anyhow, verse 18, And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. There was, I guess at that time, some Jewish uh, exorcist, some people that had the ability to cast out demons. So basically what he's saying is if your sons are casting them out, but you're accusing me of being satanic by casting them out, so aren't they also satanic? But here's his main argument. He is appealing to the universal logic of nation building or kingdom building. If a kingdom is going to expand its territory, it must remain united you're not going to expand by fighting against each other. You've got to remain united. And so he's saying this is true both for human kingdoms as well as the spiritual realm. And, and he leads to the next argument of logic, and if the kingdom of darkness is united in its rebellion against the rule of God, then why, if I'm Satan, would I be destroying Satan's work? He's saying basically... That's illogical. Why would Satan cast out Satan? It's not something more is going on, is his argument. But before we go to that next step, the question is, what is Satan and his demons trying to achieve? What, are, what is their kingdom united in? What do they want? I'll make it very simple. It's very simple. Don't need to make it complicated. Demons hate God. They hate him. That's it. Early in Satan's existence, he wanted what God had, which was his glory, his power, and his rule. Satan wanted it, but God wouldn't, won't share it. It's God's alone. His glory is his alone. So he threw Satan out of heaven. Now Satan is he's like a hurt, angry, bruised lion, and he's driven by uncontrollable jealousy and rage. That's how you can identify Satan. He wants to defeat God's work. So then the second question is, they they hate God and they want to defeat his work, so then how do you defeat an indefeatable or an undefeatable being? God is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. That means he is everywhere, knows everything, and has all the power in the world. So how do you defeat him? how do you defeat an undefeatable foe? Well, there's only one way. You hurt the ones he loves. In Deuteronomy Psalms and Zechariah, God calls his people the apple of his eye. I once heard a story about an inner city cop whose son went to a local high school. The drug dealers around the high school hated the cop because he kept infringing on their business. So they came up with a plan. If they could get the cop's son to become addicted to their drugs, they could have leverage over the cop to stop stopping their business. And it worked. They knew they couldn't go against the cop, so they got to his son. In the same way, the devil goes after you and me. He attacks us. All unclean spirits are united in this rebellion against God By hurting us. And when he hurts us, he hurts God. So, how do they do this? There's a very interesting word, and you'll see it right here in the next slide. Satan and his minions are scheming, scheming against us. That means they are planning covert operations to hurt and destroy the apple of God's eyes. So covert means behind the scenes, hidden. They are planning ways to destroy you. They watch you. They figure out, how can I best bait you? Hmm, I know your tendencies. I know what you will fall for. So they're scheming. And they do this with three strategies that they put to work. These strategies in their scheme, number one, is they use mind games against you. They attack people mentally. Go to 2 Corinthians Chapter ten, three to seven. This is a very important verse. There's sometimes we see these verses and we don't take them to heart. But look at Second Corinthians ten, three to seven. This is very important for you as a believer. Incredibly important. This is really good water, Bertha. Thank you. Is this from an artesian well in Sweden? Thanks. Sold at speedway. Fantastic. Anyhow. Second Corinthians 10 look at verse three, "For though we walk in the flesh, we are flesh, we are beings of sinew, muscle, bone. We walk around in the flesh. We are not waging war according to the flesh." For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, meaning it's not guns, knives, spears, swords. No, but we have divine power. To destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when you're Obedience is complete. And so the idea is this, is that we aren't fighting the realm with, with things that are made of flesh and blood, things that can cause blood to drip out of your veins. We are fighting arguments that Satan sets up to cause you to fall. He lies to you all the time. It's funny, I was reading this book. Jerry and Bile and I are reading it, and it's, it's actually a book that a lot of Christians have been reading And it's this guy, he's a Christian mystic, and he says, we need to allow our minds to be open to everything. Practice the presence of seeing, tasting, and loving everything around you instead of judging, analyzing, and controlling. This is saying judge, analyze, and control things because Satan's language is lies. So it's our duty to... No when he's lying to us. Because lies can lead you into places that are not good, that are not healthy, and that will form habits that will destroy you. Lies do two things. They downplay sin, so they make sin seem palatable and even good. And secondly, they promise pleasure without consequence. That's what lies do. They promise pleasure without consequence but they destroy us. Second way that uh, these schemes are used is accusation. Satan, the accuser, he accuses you and me. Zechariah three one says, Satan is about causing you to fall by making you be loaded with failure and guilt. See, by getting us to sin, he is given ammunition to accuse us by. So when I sin, we know we sin, so we know that Ooh, we're guilty. He wants to cripple our witness. He wants us to stop following. And this is what really hurts God. And the third thing he does is he uses the fear of condemnation. Hebrews says this. The fear of condemnation falls right in line with accusation. He will say, because you failed, you will be condemned. You're going to be judged. He's a master of convincing all of us. That because we've sinned, God wants nothing to do with us. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4.4, if you're still in 2 Corinthians, go to chapter 4, verse 4. Look at this verse. This is, if you don't understand this verse, take your time to meditate on it at home. But 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, the God of this world, that's another title for Satan, he's the God of this world, he's the prince of the power of the air, he's Beelzebub, he's a lot of them. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, he's saying, Satan is lying to unbelievers so they don't see Christ's beauty, his glory, his majesty. They actually see him as Pada, the enemy spirit. Boy, God hates me. That's what condemnation does to you. Cause causes you to hate God. I believe the way you can tell if Satan is lying on a very practical level, he will make you feel like you're a complete failure, and he will convince you that you can never change. He's a master at it. You're a complete failure, and you can never change, and usually he doesn't give you specifics. You just feel this overwhelming dread. The Holy Spirit, however, when he's speaking to you, he says... This is where you've sinned, makes it very clear, and He always gives you a way out through what's called forgiveness and atonement. With God, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Always. With Satan, there never is. Alright, so let's go to the third point about demons. We go back to Luke. This one is kind of surprising, I think, because you won't hear this too often, but demons are desperate creatures. They're frail, they're desperate. Why do demons attack so forcefully and impetuously? Because their time is short. Their time is very short. They are desperate and very sad creatures because they are the ones who are going to be condemned. And so all they know how to do is lie because they have nothing of substance to offer you. They've got nothing to offer you, so all they can do to you is lie. Listen to how Jesus describes them in verse 24 to 26. Very odd. Luke 11, 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last day of that person is worse than the first. Very, very Uh, cryptic, strange passages. Here's what I think it means. Since demons have been cast out of their natural dwelling place, they are operating now under the shadow of condemnation of God. They, They go to desolate and dark places to hide. Waterless places, it says. They are without a home. They are wandering and they are aimless purposeless beings awaiting judgment. That's what demons are. They're purposeless beings awaiting judgment. So they are searching for some temporary residence which will give them a chance to hurt God by ruining people. Scholars aren't quite sure Jesus says, says verses 25 and 26, is he talking about Israel? Or is he talking about human beings? This whole idea that demons enter a home Is the home Israel or is the home a human being? I believe both can be true. But in our case, what he's saying is some people, Satan will come in and live in that home. That home will be clean. He'll leave. If nothing fills that home, then he'll get seven more that are stronger to live back in. 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 kind of talks about this. Here's how I would put it in my own words. I would say, um, I think this is a description of people who are trying on their own to straighten their life out, but never submit to God. They'll either use self-help or they'll learn some principles, but they really never submit. They never really bend the knee to God. And since they never receive the Holy Spirit by faith, the demon actually comes back, but he brings spirits that are stronger than him to take up dwelling. 1 Timothy 4, two says people have left the faith and started believing the lies of deceiving spirits. I know many people have heard the truth but rejected it. And when truth is rejected, what are you left with? What are you left with? It's funny, if you read atheists, or if you know any atheists, the majority of atheists once were raised in the Christian church. Most of them. But they had a bad experience, so they quit. Truth be told, they re- really never knew Christ, never were indwelt by his spirit. So what they think they know about Christianity is a form of religion without the substance of it, as Second Timothy three five, a form of godliness, but denying its power. That's what I think is happening. So to deceive people, demons present themselves as more than they are. I think we, as Christians, are prone to get caught up with being intrigued and in. with discussing their power. Oh, man! But Jesus knows how weak they are, and as James says, demons believe in God and they shudder. They shudder at God. They aren't strong. They're terrified. They're the scared ones. So there's the fourth point, and this will be our last point. Demons submit to the king. He's the king. Listen to Jesus' final statement in 20, 20 and 22. If it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusts and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is saying, he is the strong man. He's using militaristic imagery, one writer says. He's talking about this clash of the two kingdoms. And he, this demon that is, in the person who's in the house is the demon. And then the stronger man comes, which is the Lord, and he's the one that drives them out. That's why Jesus said, if I drive them out with the finger of God. Jesus cannot be stopped because he's stronger. What's interesting in the Old Testament, when Moses performed the wonders of the plagues, when you had the magicians doing, like, uh, doing this little thing over here and then Moses comes and does this thing over here, the magicians said he's got the finger of God with him. In other words, his power is stronger than theirs. It's a power battle with demons. And God is always, was always, and will always be vastly superior than any demon, any Egyptian deity, any idol. Demons have no chance against God. And that's why Jesus makes that claim in verse 23. He who's not with me is against me. Battle lines have been drawn. What side are you on? Commentator Morris writes, there can be no neutrality about this. You cannot ride the fence of faith. People who think they don't need to decide are not safe. Because by not deciding, you're deciding. Actually, you can put it like this. Ask somebody to draw you a straight line. How many ways is there to draw a straight line? One. Draw a crooked line. How many ways is there? Millions. The demons have millions of ways to stop you. There's only one way to follow Christ. So when you say you're, you're going to choose another way, that's a demonic way to choose. You're going to wait? That's a demonic lie. You can't ride the fence. And what happens then, Jesus redirects the attack that was on himself back to the Jews. They were saying, you're driving out demons by Beelzebub. He goes, no, in fact, I'm the strong man. I'm driving out demons because I'm stronger. And either you're with me or you're against me. What do you do? He redirects it and goes at them. So, are you on his side? And do you know how to tell if you're on his side? It ends in a very strange way. Look at 27 and 28. A woman in the crowd wanted to show she was on Jesus' side, so she pronounced a blessing. Blessed is the womb who bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, I'm not going to go into this how this is a kind of denial of Mary worship as well, but she's saying, blessed are you, meaning that I'm on your side because I'm ushering strong words of blessing. But Jesus isn't impressed. He goes, no, rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Jesus is not being impressed by this woman's statement. Instead, He he corrects her. She seems to be attributing blessing, association to God through lineage of physical descent. Jesus redirects and says, loyalty to the Son is through obedience to His Word. We human beings are so prone to use hype Impressive-sounding words, religious phraseology, passionate sentimentality. This lady's passionate sentimentality. Blessed earth is the woman who bore you. That's a perfect religious phrase. And Jesus saying, stop that sappy religious stuff. Obey me. Just obey me. There's a lot of sappy religious words out there. Even when it comes to fighting demons, many in the Christian church Love to sound out with powerful declarative statements. I bind you! Like that. Calling out names of demons. Claiming the blood of Jesus. Like that. It's very impressive. Just as impressive as this lady's declarative statement. But Christ's presence comes closer to us through faith-based obedience. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I don't have time to go into it. It's kind of going long. If you want to know how to do exorcism, read 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. All exorcism is, is truth, repentance, and obeying. So as I neared the end of this book, it's an interesting book. As I neared the end of this book, the main shaman in the village started visiting the missionaries. What he was quick to learn is that the missionaries were under the complete authority of the enemy spirit, Yaipada. But as the shaman watched the lives of the missionaries, they had, they had peace. They had peace. They weren't fighting. They weren't trying to kill. No one in the missionary village wanted to fight. Men respected women. There was unity. There was love between the people. And he, when he asked them what brought them peace, the missionaries said, the creator spirit, Yai Pada." They implored the shaman to receive him, and he began to consider it. And he went out in the jungle. And one day he slept on his hammock, and he's considering it. And he said, when he's on that hammock, considering whether to receive Yapadai, all of his jungle spirits started to seduce him back. They wanted to get him back. He's being hounded. They're desperate. And all of a sudden. He said, A warm, here's his quote, a warm, dazzling, bright light appeared, and a huge voice said, You can't have him. He's mine. The shaman said, All of the spirits that were with him most of his life fled from the light, and they never came back. He said, A strange peace enveloped them, and the only thing the shaman felt was a feeling that this is all too good. This is just too good. It's too good. Desperate demons cannot stand in the presence of omnipotence. And like Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see the Lord is good. So do I believe in demons? Yes, I do. Am I scared of them? Honestly, I take easy routes. I take the easiest route. Instead of worrying about demons, evaluating, binding, figuring out how they might have entered into some dark crevice of my life through past habits and sins, I follow the simple words of James. Listen to what he says. Submit to God, and Satan will flee. Why do we make it more complicated? Submit to God, and Satan will flee. Like this shaman, jungle man, God says, he's mine. You're not having him. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. So I'm going to pray, and if we could have the choir come and sing one last song for us on this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for really the um, clear truth of Scripture. Help us, Father, to not just accept it, but to let it just take away fear. Help us realize we have the Creator Spirit in us. We have the Holy Spirit, the one who made demons. Actually, he didn't make demons. He made angels who fell and rebelled, and they're in trouble now. Help us, Lord, to hold tight to him. Help us to submit our will to him. Help us to let his truth control us and not let lies put us in fear and anxiety. Thank you, God. In Christ's name we pray.